Jesus is the love of the Father. Okay, simple little talk. It's not that long. Um, I told our musicians that they should probably just keep down to one cigarette in between the break because they're going to be calling them back up pretty quickly here. Jesus came to reveal one name for God. One name. And it was Father. He came to reveal something that had never been revealed before. And everything that Jesus did was to reveal to us the Father. He said, I only do what I see my Father do. And everything that he said was to point to the Father. And he said, I only say what I hear my Father say. John 14, Jesus said, watch me and you will see the Father. So what does that got to do with you and me? What is, how does that affect us? Jesus is saying, this is what your dad looks like. If you never met your dad, you'd want to know what your dad looks like. He's saying, this is how your dad sounds. This is the way he acts. This is your father. He said, when, you, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. He said, I'm showing you the Father so you understand your own DNA. You can really never understand truly who you are until you know what the Father looks like because you have your Heavenly Father's DNA. Paul wrote this. He said in Romans 8, 15, he says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba. Father. He's saying you, you, you didn't receive a relationship. God is not giving you a relationship that is fear-driven, which is all Israel had known. It's all the Jews had known. It was, it was a, you know, a, a punitive relationship with the Father. Jesus is saying you're free now to know God as intimately and as freely as a child knows the Father. In the Old Testament, there are so many prophetic pictures. It's fascinating to read the Old Testament and just looking how, how these in, individual stories, these short little stories, and how the scripture carries the, 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 the interaction between God and, and the human race. It doesn't tell us everything about it. It's not a, it's not a, a historical book in, the, in that sense. It just gives us snapshots of God interacting with with human beings. And there's so many of these great foreshadows and these prophetic pictures of God's heart for the human race and his intent for the human race. And in 2 Samuel chapter 17, or 2, sorry, 2 Samuel 9, um, David is 17 years old. And the prophet Samuel comes to his house and anoints him king. 17, what do you know when you're 17? Right, 17, and he anoints him king. And then David has some pretty cool years, just a couple of really great years after that, and he crushes it, right? Takes out a giant, writes music, like he's just doing awesome. But then when King Saul, who is still the reigning king, recognizes that God's favor has shifted 
from him to David. And when he realizes that even the favors of his, of his constituents, of his own people, has shifted over to David, he becomes insanely jealous. And then he kind of just goes crazy. And for the next, so for 13 years, David is hunted as the most wanted man in all of Israel. Not by one guy, but by an army. And so for 13 years, he lives in fear. For 13 years, his life is a nightmare. He's living in caves and hollows and, and places just, just to survive. And then King Saul dies. And David becomes the king. And when kingdoms changed hands, when kings displaced other kings, they, they became incredibly suspicious of anybody that comes from the old king's bloodline. And so it was very common for them to, to, to round up everybody that, has, that is related to the old king and they just, they just killed them, okay? And that brings us to 2 Samuel 9. David becomes king, and early in his reign, he says, now is there anybody left from the royal house of Saul? Anybody? And everybody in the palace is going, okay, here it goes. Here it goes, just like all the other kings. And they say, we, we, we found, after all their searching, we found one. And he has the worst name on the planet. His name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, I, I, Mephibosheth, and he was Jonathan's son, and Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, what a stupid name, and Mephibosheth, he, 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 he had gotten into an accident of sorts, and, and he became lame, and David says, go get him, and Mephibosheth is is, is absolutely terrified. And he comes to the king and he's terrified and he bows down low before the king because he's pretty sure he knows how this goes. He is about to die. He just hopes it's quick. And then David says to him, Mephibosheth, stand up. Don't be afraid. I'm not gonna kill you. I called you here because I want to be kind to you. And I'm going to be kind to you because of Jonathan, your dad. You see, while Saul was trying to kill David, David had this brotherly, this really beautiful relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And he says, I'm going to be kind to you because of your, your, your father, Jonathan. And he says this, he says, I'm going to not kill you, but I'm going to give you back all the land that your grandfather owned. And not only that, I am going to provide for you for the rest of your life. And for the rest of your life, we're going to call you Mesh because Mephibosheth is just too hard to say. And for the rest of your life, he says, you will eat at my table. I am going to provide for you. You will want for nothing. It's extravagant. It doesn't make any sense. It's unthinkable. It's in incomprehensible. Why would a king do that? It's a picture of the father. Because of Christ, the father comes to you and you know how guilty you are of sin. 
You know how you have failed. You know what a schmutz you are. All of that. And the father comes to you and he says, I'm not mad at you. Don't be afraid. Because of Christ, I've come to be kind to you. And because of Christ, I've come to give you all that is rightfully his. And I've come to look after you forever. You've become incredibly wealthy because of everything that Christ has done and everything that he has accomplished, God is transferring to you. That's the picture we get in 2 Samuel chapter 9. In Christ, you become beautifully, spiritually rich. Our adoption means that we're loved as Christ is loved. We're honored by the Father as Christ is honored. And the Greek translators, they could have used a lot of different words for father. But the Holy Spirit led them to use the Aramaic word daddy. Of all of the names we could call God, Jesus came and he said, it's this simple, guys. It's daddy. And this would have been a really, really tough pill for the first century Jews to swallow. This was a real stretch for them. Because they only knew God as Elohim, the mighty supreme God. Because that's the, 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 the God that we're introduced to in the book of Genesis. And the Bible says, and Elohim said, let there be light. And Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And Elohim created man in his own image. And then, then, then when Adam and Eve come onto the scene, then the, the, the name shifts and it changes in God. Then it reveals himself as Yahweh Elohim, which is the, a covenant-keeping God. And then thousands of years go by and then Abraham shows up and he introduces himself to Abraham as El Shaddai, the almighty God. But when God decides to send his only son, when God himself decides to show up on our planet, our orphan planet, he says, this is who I am. I'm Abba. We all have fathers, some of them not so good. I think we're all loved, some of us not so well. But God is a good, good father. And I love that story of Jonathan because he's come to us not to be angry with us. He's called us and we come to him so often in fear because we know what we're not. And he says, stand up. I haven't come to kill you, to punish you, to hate you, to judge you. I've come to be kind to you. I've come to give you what is rightfully yours because of Christ. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is walking through Jericho, and I'm, I love how much of the New Testament happens in Jericho. And, and there's the, there, he's, he's, and the crowds are coming, and, and wherever he was, there was, there was a certain amount of, of chaos and excitement. And there is a guy by the name of Bartimaeus, and, and Bartimaeus, is, he just sits and begs, right? He's marginalized, he has no voice, he's invisible, He's blind, he sits and he begs and he just takes his rightful place in the social chain of that culture. But he hears that Jesus is coming 
And he says, if ever I'm going to show up, it's today. And he starts to make a noise and a ruckus. And they try to shut him up because Jesus is coming. And he just gets louder and louder and louder. And Jesus doesn't come to him and go, wow, you're annoying. Whoa, just pump the brakes. There's others here, you know. Jesus walks up to him and he says, Bartimaeus, what would you like, son? And Bartimaeus says, I want to see. And Jesus heals him. Why? He was revealing the heart of the father. Because what father in this room would not heal their own son's blindness if they had the power to do it? He was showing us the father. In John 8, and you know the story, and I love this story. Jesus so confounded the religious leaders. They, they, they just got all tongue-tied and brain-tied. They could, they, they could not, they, they, could, they, they didn't understand him. They were offended by him. And they couldn't refute him. Because his wisdom was so profoundly higher than theirs. And they're now they're grasping at straws and they, 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 they find a woman who has just committed adultery with a Jewish man. Chances are she was a prostitute and, and then they bring her out into the public street and they, they throw her on the ground and they bring Jesus there and they say, you know what? The law of Moses, our law says that we get to stone her. What do you say? They're focused on the law. They're focused on being right. God's not as interested in being right as he is interested about you. And Jesus looks at the woman and he says, let him who has no sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. Once again, I knew he was going to say that. And they leave. The religious leaders, they, 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 they leave. They're, he has so much authority in his words and in his voice and then he turns to the woman. And they're left alone. An adulterous woman, a prostitute, and a rabbi. And this place, this whole scene, the atmosphere shifts. And now this becomes an incredibly sacred moment. It goes from a place of utter shaming and judgment and condemnation and being right to a sacred father-daughter moment. And he sits with her. And he says, where are those who have accused you? Where are those? She says, they're gone. And he goes, neither do I condemn you. Why did he do that? Because that is the heart of the father. That is the heart of the father to you. That's the heart of the father to me. And Jesus walked through the towns. And I, I love this story. I gave it to you a couple weeks ago of, of um, Nicodemus. Jesus takes a detour through Jericho. And it wasn't any accident. And his detour takes him to a sycamore tree. And it wasn't an accident. And he looks up in the sycamore tree and there's a little man in the tree, a very bad little man, the most notorious little man in all of Jericho, the most hated man in all of, and it wasn't an accident. Hey, little buddy, come on down. I'm coming to your house. 
And I said this, that you take the, the love of the best mothers and the best fathers in all human history. You take all of their kindness and all of their grace and all of their gentleness and all of their wisdom and all of their fidelity and you put it in one human being and that human being would be a faint shadow of the person Nicodemus spent two hours with. And all we know, we don't know what they talked about. All we know is a few hours in the presence of that kind of love, the love of the father, Nicodemus clinks his glass, stands up and says, whoa, everybody, because of this, I'm gonna sell half of my estate and give it to the poor. Because of what's going on right here, he looks to Jesus and he calls him Lord, which just shifts the room because he just said, I know you're God. I know you are God. And you chose my house. And you didn't come here to condemn me. You came to eat with me. And because, because of this, I'm giving it away. And whatever I stole, I'm giving back four times. And Jesus came to introduce us to that father. Towards the end of his ministry, Jesus said this. He said, I've manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. And then in verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one that we are one as we are one. He says, Father, protect them in your name. Protect them in the intimacy of this beautiful relationship, this beautiful love relationship that you're inviting them into. Protect them. Let them always know that you're daddy. You're always there. You're the father. Protect them in that. I'll tell you this, that every one of us in this room needs to know how delightful we are. You need to I want to, you, you, you need to be aware and intuitive to your own beauty, to what makes you, you, and to be tuned and aware of your own beauty and, and the, the authenticity of, of, of your own essence, to be really aware of that and to live out of that freely there needs to be a revelation that you are loved and delighted in utterly. The more you know that you are delighted in, the freer you are to be who you are. One of the most enormous spiritual tasks that we have as children of God is to claim that we are the beloved, the much-loved sons and daughters of God. It's, it, it, and most of us fail at this on a regular basis. Most of us look to our worst moments and define ourselves by that. We look to our biggest mistakes and we say, we're really, you know, I'm, I'm having a good day, but I'll, I'll, ultimately that's who I am over there because I've really messed up. But that is not at all what the Father sees when he looks at you. The ultimate spiritual temptation is to doubt that you are the much-loved child and daughter of God. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Quick cigarette. In Ephesians chapter 1, this is such a beautiful verse. 
Um, Paul says long before he laid down the earth's foundation, he had us in mind and had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy in his love. Long before he laid down, you know how many years ago that was? I don't, but it's either millions or billions. Think about this, millions or billions of years ago, God saw you and he already had focused on you and he knew that he would hold your face in his hand and say, I'm not mad at you, I'm not angry with you, I didn't come to kill you, I came to be kind to you. And I came to adopt you and to give you what is rightfully Christ's, what is rightfully, because I want to lavish it on you. It doesn't make any sense. And this is the most intimate truth about all human beings. Not just the ones that think like you do. Not just those who believe what you believe. This is true. This love is lavished on all of us. You have to hear your voice. You have to hear your name, rather, from the voice of one who comes, calls from all eternity to all eternity. That you are loved with an everlasting love. And when you hear that, then you create sacred space. You make more space for it. We think that'll make us arrogant. You know what that'll make us? That'll make us free. When you, when you live out of a, a sense that you are loved utterly and delighted in, you dance like no one's looking. I dance like an idiot when my grandkids are in the room and we're dancing. I, I, you, you'll never see that. Because there's freedom in that. My grandkids run around the house buck naked all the time. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying... There's total freedom in absolute acceptance. And, abs and they are three and five. <laughs> Just saying, okay? We're not shifting our culture for you. You live more, you take more chances. So what if you fail? What is the big deal with failing? Why are we so terrified to fail? When you know that you're utterly loved he said, I came to be kind to you. I came to restore to you everything that belongs to Jesus. And you're worried about failing? Go out there, live large, take chances, take risks, risk in love, risk in relationship. And when you know this at the level of your soul, it nurtures your living, it nurtures your relationships. And that's really critical because I promise you this, as long as you're on this planet, you're going to experience rejection. Some just, just won't like you. You're going to experience praise, but you're also going to experience disappointment and losses. You're going to experience pain and failure, but as well as success. But it doesn't matter because none of it defines you when your heart is nurtured by his love. And I pray that uh, the Father, the love of the Father would revive your soul today. And that would bring joy to your heart and uh, a lightness to your step. Let's pray.
I love that picture, Lord. We expect to get beaten, expect to get killed, we expect to be punished. And yet you come to us and you said, and come for that. I came to be kind to you. I came to give you your inheritance. I came to provide for you for the rest of your life, for you to eat at my table and enjoy my presence and my food and my company. And Father, for those that really needed to hear that today, I pray for the spirit of revelation. I pray, God, that you'd run that past their brain right down into their hearts, into their souls. And so today's a great day. No matter what our fathers were like, today is a great day. And we love you for your love in Jesus' name.